Yo, is this thing on? Man, whatever. Walk with me. Welcome back to Walk with TFB. Tim Bryson here, and as y'all know, I'm a Black millennial who is eager to have and filter conversation with authentic people centered on education, sport, and culture. Today, we are walking with a journalist, a professor, and a dog mom. A Texas native, our guest grew up in the streets of Missouri City before moving to Austin, where she earned her bachelor's in broadcast journalism and political communications from the University of Texas. While at UT, she was inducted into several honor societies, pledged Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, and served as a Gateway Scholars mentor. She was also an Emma Bowen Foundation Scholar, an experience that both prepared her for and accelerated her in her industry. Our guest is a video journalist who has worked for several networks, including but not limited to ESPN, The Washington Post, ABC, and currently The New York Times. She has worked in several function areas of journalism, including breaking news, travel, food, and politics. And she approaches journalism with her creativity, and her work has been shared on both lo local, national, and international levels. In 2019, she began her parallel career in side hustle as an adjunct lecturer and has taught at both Howard University and New York University. I've learned so much from this guest over the last several years. Her experiences cannot be imitated. And her commitment to producing powerful content that actually means something to the viewer is extremely contagious. But without further ado, y'all help me welcome Taylor Turner. What's poppin' T? Hey. <laughs> what an intro. Thank you. <laughs> How you living, yo? How you living? How you living? Talk to me. Um, you know, it's great. I am in New York, and there's allegedly a snowstorm coming this weekend oh, that's um, with like six to 12 inches, but there's an alleged snowstorm every couple of weeks, so I don't know what to believe. Uh, but you know, the grocery stores are barren, per usual. So yeah. Mm. You kind of New York like yo. I, I, every time somebody asks where I want to live, I say, "Yo, I'm not going more north than DC." Oh yeah, I'm trying to escape. So. I'm just not. <laughs> <laughs> Get out. Well, you have been on the move a little bit. I know, you know, obviously, you know, sent you the outline before, as every guest has gotten before the podcast episode has started. Um, but before we jump into what's your story, the one question we've been asking this season is, you know, what's bringing you black joy right now? And, you know, I thought I was going to be prepared for that question. <laughs> um, I would say. Oof, right now, in this moment, in this moment, um, President Biden re-upping his promise to nominate an African-American woman on the Supreme Court. Tell us more. Most people that hear this, when they hear it, Still may not have heard it by that time. Just tell us more about that. So breaking news, um, Justice Breyer, one of the um, more liberal Supreme Court justices, has announced that he is retiring, which gives the Biden administration an opportunity to appoint someone to the bench. And one of Biden's campaign promises was that if, if he had opportunity, he would nominate the first Black woman um, nominated a black woman the first black woman to serve on the supreme court so here we are what a time and look thank you joey and uh kamala for upholding your promise but them loans 
<laughs> we ain't forget my man getting ice cream today i'm like yo yo jenny's caught freeze them all like that ice cream is frozen okay come on now <laughs> and double scoop costs too much let's jump let's jump into this um to this podcast interview taylor because as i mentioned uh, in your intro you have a lot of experiences across many big networks right big is relative but at least in the u.s huge networks um that some of us have experiences with either watching or you know working on or with others have our own opinions about uh, but we're gonna hear from the source today. But before we hear from the, the source, the first question for you as always, segment one, what's your story? Oh, wow, I, um, my story, I am a loud and proud Texan. Uh, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a sister, a daughter, a bodybuilder, uh, a journalist, a proud black woman. And I just think all of those things make me who I am. Um, one value like my parents really instilled in me like, growing up was fairness and the importance of being fair to people um and so I've kind of just like taken that through like all of my personal life goals and even it's a big part of journalism um and I think also a big reason about why a big part of why I'm a journalist now let's say more about that though um yeah so I uh, in terms of being a journalist I know what I've wanted to do since I was eight. Um, and that was be a storyteller, be a reporter. Um, I just saw at an early age how powerful information was and how powerful it was to inform people and what people can do with that knowledge or lack thereof. Um, and so, you know, I just really took to heart the importance of like seeking the truth and using that to help people understand the world. And so for me, as a black woman, I really think that journalism is a tool for discussion and difference, especially for people of color. Um, and that's like something I've come to embody. Um, Soledad O'Brien actually said that once, and she's one of a, a woman, a strong journalist that I look up to. And so that's kind of just like carried me throughout, and I've just modeled my, my career after that. I've never heard that in my life, but I love it. A tool for discussion and difference. Need to bring that to my damn class next week, yo. And start start watching uh ABC and whatnot. But you mentioned you wanted to be, you knew you wanted to be a journalist, right? A storyteller. Mm -hmm. Um, when you were eight years old. And of course, you go through, oh, I don't know what age that is, I guess late, single digits, middle school. You get to high school, high tower. Yeah. Right. How did you continue to refine your skills? How to you continue to expose yourself to new ideas, new practices, new journalism techniques, understanding you were gonna pursue journalism when you got to college. Yeah, um, so I'm one of those people, I'm a planner, uh, and I'm one of those people that's like, if I want to do something, it's going to get done. So, you know, in middle school, I uh, signed up as an elective for like our journalism classes. And then in high school, um, my high school is like, I'm trying to think of a way that most people understand. It's like half public school, half charter school. And so I was in the media program uh, in high school. And so then in high school, I also applied for internships and I applied to the Emma Bowen Foundation, which is one of the greatest blessings I've ever received professionally, like personal development wise. Uh, and it's an organization for minorities in media uh, that gives opportunities for us to intern in the media world. And it's from everything from writing to producing, to film, to animation, and you have an internship every summer until you graduate from college. It's paid and the money that you make, they match and they send it to your school for scholarship money. Uh, and that just was really 
a big part of my core foundation of being a journalist and also seeing other people in the field that looked like me uh, was a big was a big deal. And so I, uh, I'm still involved with the foundation as a mentor, as a volunteer, because um, I, I think it's also important to pour into people as much as they've poured into you. And you carried that with you when you went to, uh, to UT. Yeah. <laughs> so before you even get to UT, what you did, because even look at your LinkedIn, I'm like, damn, you did a lot of stuff more than I even thought you did, especially all them damn honor societies. But why UT? Oh, well, I. OK, so <laughs> I hate to admit this, but like I was not on the UT wagon. Right. I was just like, it is. Is it a cult? Like people are obsessed with this place. I was going to play softball in college. I had D1 scholarships. Like that was my thing. Um, and then I had academic scholarships. That was like my backup plan. Um, and then unfortunately I had tumors on my spine and I had back surgery twice, could walk, couldn't play sports. And so I chose, I reevaluated what my academic scholarships were and Texas was at the top. And so, <laughs> I had the opportunity one day to like miss school and go do Explore Texas where like you go to UT for the day and like see all the different orgs and look at the dorms and buildings and all that. And I went and I came back home and I was like, I'm in love, I'm joining the cult. <laughs> and like, ever since that's all I talked about, I bleed burnt orange, I'm a ride or die. It is the greatest university ever. And it's not up for discussion. That's honest, but even at you, even at, it, well, it's not honest. That's your truth, and I respect that. Shout out to Ohio State, but even even while at UT, you were you mentioned you're involved with the Emma Bowen Foundation, right? You said you had a plan, right? That you had that you wanted to follow from the age you were eight to become a journalist, which you obviously are doing now. But what are some of the decisions that you made while at UT that you may not have planned for, um, that were either super life changing, influential, or pivotal? Um, in your in your life journey. Yeah. Oh, good question. Um. A couple of things. So personal decisions that I made at UT that were pivotal uh, was, of course, becoming a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Um, and then professional decisions were uh, I was a part of the Bill Archer Fellowship in undergrad, which is a program that I applied to where you spend your semester in Washington, D.C., interning and, and taking classes. And so through Emma Bowen. I got an internship at C-SPAN and I had the most amazing um, mentors there at C-SPAN, uh, Angie Sheldon and Janelle Henry. And, um, you know, that that cemented that I wanted to be back in D.C. after graduation. Um, so that that really changed my that really helped narrow in where I wanted to go professionally post-college. Um, and then another part of that was service, a big life-changing decision. Uh, service is a big part of my life. And I was a member of Texas 4000, uh, which is a team. It's the largest undergrad charity event in the world. And we raise $10,000 per rider. There's 90 of us and we bike from Texas to Alaska. And along the way, you raise money for cancer research. You give speeches about cancer research. You volunteer. Um, unfortunately, I didn't complete the journey for health reasons, but it was one of the best decisions in my life um, for a year and a half, like training, riding, raising money, building community. It was great. Damn. Uh, before I go any further, how did you find out about Emma Bowen? Um, I found out through my high school teacher. 
um, who was uh, so part of our like charter program, if you will. Um, we had a media, medical, and engineering academy in high school. And so in the, you know, the engineering kids had engineering teach like real life, <laughs> real life, um, industry professionals. So engineers <laughs> were their teachers. Um, and then the medical students, you know, they had classes at the hospital, they interned at the hospital, they had former doctors as their teachers. And then for journalism or the media academy that I was in, our classroom, they rebuilt a new room. Um, so we had our own TV set and our teachers were former um, local news directors, uh, camera operators, the whole nine. And so they're plugged into the community and they're like always giving you real world advice, um, opportunities. And so that's how I learned about Emma Bowen. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I bring that up because a lot of times it's like, why, people are like, why don't you part of the NCA internship? Why don't you part of Emma Bowen? Or why don't you part of the Bill Archer? It's like, I didn't know about it. Yeah. No one, no one told me about it. And I, and I go back to Courtney's episode this, um, I think it was a season, yeah. When she, and I asked her like, yo, like what can higher ed professionals do to better prepare, you know, or better help K-12 entering the space? And she flipped it and she said, I think K-12 can be doing a better job. And so even hearing you talk about your high school <laughs> exposing you to this fountain, right? What if more high schools did that, did the work to do that for high school students? Well, yes, and I have something to say about also, what K-12 can better prepare. I can I can wait. Talk to us. It's your, it's your episode. Talk to us. So, you know, um, to Courtney's point, I also would encourage K through 12 to um, continue um, to teach, teach digital media literacy. Mm. Um, so what does that mean? For those that don't know, what does that even mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so let me break it down. Um, digital media literacy is preparing you with the skills to be a critical consumer of media so basically like what that breaks down to is being able to evaluate whether a source is credible being able to say like the the information i'm receiving is this true or is it false is this true or is this misinformation aka fake news aka deep fakes because a lot of us are sharing um stuff on facebook and elsewhere that is I'm like, where did, where did we get this from? And I take personal, it just, oh, it hits real close to home. Oh, yo. But it doesn't stop there. It needs to, like in college, you know, I taught digital media literacy at Howard. Uh, and it's, it's super important, especially for students that missed it through K through 12. It's even super important for adults and older adults because they're most susceptible to misinformation. So that's something I'm very passionate about, if you can't tell. That's probably, and look, I, I, I like I like a structure a little bit, right? Three segments, but I'm gonna stay on this topic for a second because okay. when I hear about credible information, and I'm thinking particularly about Twitter right now, I'm looking at blue checks. You, if you got a blue check and you tweet something out, Ooh. you see what I'm saying? That's not, I don't know, that's, that's, can, I, can I be honest? Can we be honest on the pod? We, yeah, come on. So how are you gonna, so if someone who I thought was a journalist or someone who, ha who has a blue check or I thought was credible, shares information, right? I'm immediately retweeting it, right? Because we know Twitter is just instant. I'm not turning on the TV to see uh, ABC. Yeah. You see, I don't, I don't even got them damn channels on my TV no more, right? So like, how does someone, in your little quick 30 second, 45 seconds spiel, how do we identify what's credible and what's deep fake? Okay. <laughs> fake news well, news fake? <laughs> before we get there, I'm gonna address the blue checks. Talk to it, yo. Anybody can have a blue check. <laughs> okay, it's not, the bar, the bar isn't as high as we think for the blue checks. Um, <laughs> So, um, you know, sometimes they don't always note credibility. Sometimes they note clout. And so 
um, you know, Twitter has done some great work with, you know, asking you like, hey, did you read this before you retweeted or before you shared it? Um, but so digressing off of that, I mean, I have a blue check, but I'm a journalist. Um, I take pride in that. Um, and, you know, I, I seek the truth. Right. So a way a couple of quick tips on how to evaluate the credibility of a source. One is to compare the article you're reading to another source. Right. And that, that's just a quick, simple check. Uh, also ask yourself, like, who the author is of this message, who their intended audience is, and do they have the authority to speak on this topic? Mm. Um, and then another thing is, is there like a chain of evidence in the reporting? Like, is there enough in-depth analysis where you can take the facts that were reported and draw the same conclusion? You know, that's just real quick off the top. Um, of course, there's a lot more to dive into there, but you know, I don't want to have everybody not in Professor Turner's class. So no, you get you can get paid for this information too. But just so you, <laughs> if I'm hearing you correctly, right? If I had to, if I had to uh, spit it back out, it's too many people with cloud without that ain't incredible. Oh wait, <laughs> I mean that that's a little spicy, but so uh, yeah, a little cloud. Yeah, with TFB. This ain't this ain't the come on now. This ain't the newsroom. We can we can go with that. We I'll say it. I said that. It's too many people with yeah, cloud. Yeah. That ain't credible. I said that. There, yeah, I'm going to leave that one. To, I'm going to attribute that one to you. <laughs> I said that. But before we move into segment two, I know something else that um, I did find in my research um, that stuck out to me. As you know, I'm very big into global education, international education right now. Uh, was your experience at, at and or with uh, Beijing Foreign Studies University? Because can you talk more about that, especially under, talk, just talk more about that first before I even jump in and say my two, two cents. Yeah, so in undergrad, my best professor ever was Dr. Leonard Moore, and he taught, um, I, I was a gateway scholar, so he was over the Division of Diversity and Inclusion at University of Texas, because as you know, our, at the time, at least our percentage of minorities on campus or Blacks on campus is 3%, right? And so I was a scholar in this um, program, and as a part of that, sorry, my dog, as a part of that, um, we were um, the first class uh, under President Obama's initiative to go to China as like a student exchange. Um, I don't want to misquote, but I believe it was like the Coca-Cola Foundation uh, was a part of our grant, our exchange, and why we went. Hmm. I have to double check. Um, but we, um, so we went to China. We studied social entrepreneurship. And we also each had to have like a research topic while we were there. And so I researched media censorship in China, obviously journalism. Mm -hmm. We know like um, China's struggles with censoring. Mm -hmm. And um, so that experience was amazing. So it was my first time abroad. Um, and then to go with a group of black and brown students was amazing. Um, and then also just to, it was a cultural difference because I just felt so welcomed. You know, I felt sometimes, you know, here at home, I feel like other. And in Beijing, I felt like my blackness was appreciated. It was beautiful. You know, it was valued. People were asking me to bless their babies. Some people had never seen black people before in person, only on TV. Um, you know, people admired all aspects of you, um, even like your hair, your just your community, it was amazing to be a part and to be able to also share a part of myself 
and learn, like share part of my culture and then learn a, another culture as well. How long were you there for? Uh, we were there for a May semester, so wow. like a month and a half or a month. Wow. Yeah, therefore, yeah, that's a good, that's a good time period. Yeah, that's dope. Like I say, I wish, wish and hope that more of us, you know, Black Americans can travel outside of the U.S. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's essential, yo. Like just just from world view, journalism, worldview, education, right? It, it's essential because you see stuff that you can only imagine and wouldn't even believe until you saw it in person. Yeah, and it's like it's like I got that first taste, and after that, I was like, oh, where else can I go? I'm ready. My passport. I got to renew it because it's been like like ten years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, we're aging. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's super dope. So segment two. Segment two, trending topics. This this uh, season's focused on education. And you mentioned several times now over the last 10, 15, 20 minutes that I'm a journalist. I'm a journalist. I'm a journalist. What does that mean? What is, what is a journalist? Hmm. Well, um, I believe a journalist is someone who seeks the truth and then uses that to help people understand the world. Um, and, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, like once you're armed with that truth, it's we use that information for discussion, for difference, for accountability, uh, to give voices to disenfranchised groups. Uh, I personally think those, the information is necessary for people of color and for Black people. So that's what a journalist is. Talking like you got a master's degree, y'all. Hey. That talking, like, talking like you went to grad school, y'all. So what's the difference between journalism and uh, PR then? Yeah, so... I think sometimes a lot of people get those two um, confused a little because um, they are closely related. So they're similar in that they both involve communicating a message to the public, right? Um, but journalism keeps the public informed and can serve as like a system that checks the power of the government and provides an open access to information and flow of communication. Mm-hmm. But PR protects, so let me give you an example. Um, so when you know, COVID, we've all first learned of COVID. Mm-hmm. Every journalist was like working hard and overtime to like spew out information as soon as we got it, like from the CDC and verified sources. So that was letting people know the symptoms, um, how it impacted the body. Yep. Um, so it was, it was informing the public. It was a public, it was a public service in a way, right? Yep. Um, but PR, PR protects the reputation of an organization and it carefully crafts the public image and communicates the organization's goals. So for example, think like if somebody was wearing an Amazon t-shirt and committed a criminal act and it went viral and everyone is now saying like, oh, Amazon, did you see Amazon do X, Y, and Z? A spokesperson from Amazon or someone from their PR team may release a statement distancing themselves for that individual in the in the act to preserve their brand to protect mm-hmm. their image um so they have more focused personal goals that benefit them when you're working in pr okay so i love these conversations because it's stuff that i don't know and i'm glad i don't know it because i'm learning so for me then it's like there's a there's it seems and it could just be volume based right or like what i'm consuming on a day-to-day that there are more publicists, right, PR PR folks, then there are journalists. And I feel like from a journal, from a consumer standpoint, when I think about journalism based on your own example, it's like, okay, I'm thinking about Woj, I'm thinking about um, Adam Schefter, right? I'm thinking about sports, like what's happening, the trade, right? It's very factual. Did he get traded or not? Right. Did he get cut or not? Yes. Did she, get, did she make the shot or not, right? 
Yes. When we're talking about, you mentioned obviously COVID, shout out to COVID-19 in 2022, but we mentioned COVID, mentioned everything else, natural disaster, breaking news, politics, areas that you worked in. It feels like it's more PR focused, especially when shit goes left or shit goes down. It's like, it's where, can, where can I, where do we find journalism in 2022? Given that social media, especially has been an outlet and a medium that many of us are consuming information. So I think, um, I think you can just start with like traditional news sources, right? So your local news, um, subscribing to newsletters, um, listening to news podcasts, um, you know, the, varying your, your platform, listening to the radio, um, the, the news shows on the radio. And I think having, being able to identify like go-to sources is sure. like your for sure way to um, be able to discern what is news versus, you know, what's blogs or opinions um, or things like that. Cause it, it, it is a, a, sometimes it is a very blurred line. Like sometimes people don't realize a talk show versus a news programming. True, very true. But in that same vein, again, help, help me to understand, help us to understand that we have whether AB, I haven't turned on the TV in a long time, but you got ABC, you got yeah. CBS, depending on, you know, if you left right in the middle, you got CNN, you got Fox. They're all not created equal. They all not sharing the same information in the same way. Why? <laughs> like, you see what I'm saying? Like, well, what, what, what can we trust? Let's talk to us. Help yeah, so, so I, okay, <laughs> New York is so loud. Um, <laughs> so ideally, every news organization publishes a set of um, ethical standards or core values for their journalists to operate under. Sure. Um, and a common theme out of those are, are typically fairness, accountability, um, openness. And so out of all of that, like that's what you should be looking for. Like, as I kind of mentioned earlier, like how you evaluate a credible source. Mm -hmm. um, so no matter what you consume, it, it's up to you to, to be uh, a responsible consumer in a way to be able to articulate or discern what's the message, who's, who's the message behind this. Like you always wanna ask yourself that. It's the same thing with like advertisers um, because not everyone adheres to the same or to the journalistic standard sure. they should. Let me not hold you accountable to that. Maybe. If it's something that you want, maybe one day you can uh you can guide top down the direction of these networks. But like damn, you can yo. always subscribe to the New York Times, same shameless plug. You heard it. Subscribe to New York Times. Uh, <laughs> we can figure out a walk with TFB uh endorsement sponsorship. But nevertheless, uh Taylor, you are a journalist. Uh you mentioned that we're getting old, right? Passports are being or mine's expired, yours about to expire. But since you've been in this industry, and I would argue 20 years, right, since you were even eight years old, but I would go back to the last decade, right, since you entered college, how have you seen journalism evolve over the last 10 years? Well, it's funny that you asked me that because someone asked me that earlier today. Yeah, um, that's a good question. Also, Shout out to that person. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I would say that journalism has, the way journalists receive and disseminate information has drastically increased. You know, the way we're able to communicate with the rest of the world and get news out there um, has increased. And I mean, you can see that through the 24 hour news cycle, right? You like get push alerts and updates sent to your phone. Um, 
And I think what's been unprecedented for journalism is this battle with misinformation and attacks against journalists and news organizations. Um, but on the bright side, I've seen, I have seen journalism continue to evolve. Like it's still able to maintain its core principles, but it evolves in terms of as new products are created and new platforms are introduced, journalism adapts to those platforms and meets the readers where they are. Uh, and then I also appreciate how newsrooms now have to be more accountable. They have to be accountable for their hiring and promotion practices. They have to be accountable for the stories they tell, the stories they don't tell. And they're not only being held accountable by their employees, but by the public also, um, which I think is really powerful. And so I, I, I just know that I, I foresee that continuing, um, continuing on. I believe it, and I can see that as well. Um, at least even going back to like snow days, this is random as hell, but like we used to have to wake up and like sit in front of the TV, yo, and like watch for, Wait for your school, school to be called. Come on now. I mean, I don't know much about snow days, but I know a little bit. We That's had cold saying. weather days. Yeah, you know oh, true, 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 true. True, yeah, sit in front of the TV. But we talked about, or you just mentioned like how it's evolved over the last decade. But I want to dig a little bit deeper now into your experience as a journalist, because as I mentioned, you ABC, C-SPAN, I forgot to mention earlier, ESPN, The Post, New York Times, I mean, you have a vast array of experiences in journalism, living day to day doing this shit, right? And I definitely want you to talk about the president, as much as you can, at least about the presidential election and covering that. But let's talk a little bit more about like, what is, what is it like to be a journalist, right? Like, what is it like to do this work every single day? And how are you taking care of yourself in that process? We'll ask, I'll follow up and ask you that again on the back end. Um, okay, let me start with the election because after the 2016 election, I made a promise I would never cover another election. <laughs> I was like, I had to crawl out the newsroom. I gave, I left it all. I left it. I gave it all. My whole body, <laughs> life, spirit, soul. I was married to the job. And here I was in 2020 covering the election again and a pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I love, like, oh, it's a very, um, it's not raining. <laughs> I don't, I was trying to think of the, you know, the three different types, like parasitic, like the relationships, like one's parasitic, one's oh. where they're mutually exclusive and one's yeah. where it benefits one but doesn't harm the other. I'll look it up. I'll look I it don't up. know which one we're in. I'm in with that with news, but <laughs> I can't let it go. Um, but yeah, so covering the election, um, both elections, or elections in general, because midterms are coming up in November. Woo, okay, I'm not ready, but um, they're, they're very, you know, it's very time consuming, but you're really able to tune in to hear a lot of different voices across the country. Um, and it's really an all hands on deck. So you can be doing, you can be working in departments you've never worked in, telling stories you've never told before. Um, which is an amazing opportunity. But um, on a day-to-day -day for news, it, it depends on, you know, where you work and what you do. Like, um, so my background's in broadcast. And so when I worked in TV, you know, we had 12-hour days. We Sometimes we work seven days in a row. Um, you may get one day off, but you don't get like two days off back-to-back -back all the time. And it can be a random Tuesday off and then a Thursday off, and then you work for 10 days. Um, but the perks are great. You're always fed. Oh, okay. I'm about to say something. What? Go ahead. Fed. You know, if you have drivers, stay in the hotels, you know, um, th those are like the network perks. 
Um, but then you realize like, oh, it's because you always are at work. Um, they don't want you to go home. <laughs> but I loved it. It was an amazing, um, amazing time. You got to meet so many great people, tell so many amazing stories. Um, I was at, you know, I covered Trump's inauguration and it was at the ball. I had never been to a presidential ball before. Like when else would I do that? Um, you know, so it was just amazing. Um, just the people you meet, stories you tell in digital, when I, um, your digital day-to-day, -day, um, I think it's a little more, you have a little bit more of a balance than you did with TV. Um, cause with TV, you're meeting air deadlines. So you got to get everything done for like the nightly news, like world news yeah, tonight or good point. morning America, you know? Um, so, and if it's not done by the time it airs, like, who that's your behind. So digital um gives me a little bit more of a breather in that i have like longer deadlines um and then you're able to update your stories in real time um by simply like republishing or sending a new alert um you're able to like sit and really analyze viewer engagement and who's watching what and try to figure out why and um so i just i, I like the pace of digital um you're still telling the same types of stories sure. just maybe different lengths so in digital, I can tell longer stories. Um, yeah. What's been one of your favorite, it may be Todd, but one of your favorite either stories you produced or like content that you created, but if you think back over your at least your 10 year career, if I may say so, like one of your um, favorites, a couple of your favorites. So I have, so, okay, I'll, I'll say that one of the two top, the two topics I've enjoyed covering the most was when I was a food producer and a travel producer obviously because i love to eat and it was great being in a kitchen with new recipes and then travel because obviously you get to travel and it's work you know um and like our last story was mardi gras like before COVID, and like riding on the mardi gras floats and telling the story of mardi gras like a local when i was at the washington post um and then one of my i say like favorite story but it's one of the most powerful stories i think i've personally told I was interviewing Tamir Rice's mom on what would have been his 18th birthday. Um, because that that story, you know, it took a lot of courage for her to, to speak and to, you know, still be speaking from a place, a place of pain and, um, and the PTSD that her and her family experienced and to share that with me, a complete stranger, someone in the media who sometimes has not always told her story in her, you know, in her eyes fairly or how it should be told. And so for her to entrust me with her story, um, for her to be vulnerable and emotional with me, I was just so grateful. Um, and I was, it was also one of the times I was the most nervous telling the story because, you know, calling, because what I had to do was like call all these numbers to find her. And so every time someone picks up, it's like your heart skips a beat because you're like, okay, how do I talk to someone I don't know about the death of their child and such a tragic death, a public death? Um, and so, yeah, it was the, the story. Um, it's a very strong story. Um, and it was at the height of the George Floyd protest and when a lot of American newsrooms were having a racial reckoning. Um, and so, you know, the story, it did a lot. It, it, it told a lot. It, it infected a lot of people like myself that are part of the storytelling process and my producers also. I appreciate you sharing that and being honest about your experience. Um, with those two stories in particular, um, and I can't wait to ask this question because I know we're going to talk about something else on uh, segment three, but like literally, and as honest as you can be, how are you taking care of yourself in this process? 
Um, so I take Taylor days, which are, I pick a day once a month and it's all about me. So I think sometimes I work people like to call them wellness days or personal days, whatever you want to call it, but it's, you know, it's whatever Taylor wants to do that day. Um, and I'm really firm about boundaries. Like all my coworkers know this and they like laugh and I'm like, y'all know, but when I'm not at work, I'm not at work. I don't look at slacks, reply to emails. I told my manager, if it is an emergency, she knows to call me because I don't, at the end of the day, I'm like, there are, we have hundreds of journalists. We are fortunate enough to have hundreds of journalists. If something's breaking, they will find someone to cover it. Yeah. You know, and, and you can be a strong worker and a good team player, but you should never be in a position where like the show stops and starts with you. Like yeah. you should be that much of a good team player and have trained your team mm -hmm. to where they, you're not the sole person they're relying on. Cause that doesn't do any good for you personally or your team. If like you were to leave or something were to happen to you. Mm -hmm. So like, I like to set boundaries and then be a great team player. And that's how I take care of me. Real. That's real. And so, like I said before, you started a parallel career, side hustle, however you want to look at it, right? But you wanted to get in education, right? Preparing the next generation. Shout out to Gen Z. I love y'all. But preparing the next generation to be like socially just journalists, like like literally to, to, to create and share the truth, right? To create as a tool for discussion, accountability, and difference. As I say, these notes, that's good. It's good shit. So why? Teaching is not fun. That's not, the shit's not easy, number one. Let's, let's keep it a buck. Like, if you ain't getting no homework, it might be a little better, but it ain't easy. Like, why Why teaching? Why education? Why? Um, so I think, for me, I have been fortunate enough to have amazing teachers and mentors. And so it's just like, you can't just sit there and, like, not share, like, what you've learned. And, like, people have helped you. Like, it's, it's you owe it to help other people also. And I think you just have to do what works for you, like when it comes to teaching. So for what works for me is sharing real world experiences. Um, and a lot, a big part of my industry is like hands-on knowledge and, and real world experiences, building relationships. It's huge, that's a huge part of it. And so, you know, that's, that's a big part of like what I do in the classroom. You know, it's not like, yes, we have our textbooks and require readings, but it's like, What's going on in the news? What are you reading? Why are you reading that? It's like creating an engaged learning experience where like the students feel like a part or responsible for what they're learning. And so you taught about, this is actually really good, at both undergraduate and undergraduate level. Mm -hmm. You taught at a HBCU. Now you're mm -hmm. teaching at NYU, pretty sure private. With a heavy international uh, student presence as well. If it's not private, it's private. It ain't HBCU, it's probably that. <laughs> but you're in DC and New York. So what yeah. do you see to be some similarities and some differences between both contexts? Again, no, no one's better than the other, but like similarities and differences between undergrad and grad, but then also DC, New York educator, but yeah. also HBCU, nine. What you seeing? Uh, I would think, I think that similarities definitely would be, um, you know, universities at the end of the day putting the needs of the students first. Mm. Um, and the students having similar needs, honestly. 
um, which are, you know, they're, they're looking for real world context, real world connection. Um, and the students are like very inquisitive um, and they just show up to class and are engaged. Uh, and so that's like what I've seen as a lot of similarities. And also people are in the same space, like on the same level when it comes to digital media literacy. Um, and so like, you know, everyone kind of needs that same foundation to build from. Uh, differences I would say would be the types of communities. So um, from my experience at Howard, community means and feels a little different. Um, it, the definition of like family really hits like family, right? Like other faculty are looking out for you, inviting you over um, for dinner, or like to meet their family or having um, that, that relationship, like the, the community relationship is defined a little differently. Um, and I would say like the pandemic is, contributes to this too, mm -hmm. um, but um, in terms of like what community looks like at NYU, um, it is more, um, it, it's still very much supportive, um, but the, the relationship doesn't always have like that familiar aspect to it, but it's definitely like still has that support um, and like we are one in community uh, aspect. Mm. So interesting to me. I mean, I'm glad, shout out to NYU and Howard for even, um, not for even, for choosing you to be in, in their faculty, on their faculty. Yeah, I'm yeah. super grateful. No, you I mean you're making a difference. And I think people always say, I want it, I want a great fit. I want it, I want it to be a great fit. I mean, you're being a value add to both Howard and NYU's community, not just their university, but their entire community, because you're you're helping to prepare those students, students you get to work with, to then go out. That's your tree. It's like your little, it's like a family tree. I mean, yeah. we keep that's what it is. Yeah, and they've they've both given me like different experiences. Um, like personal and professional experiences that I'm just very, very thankful for. Yeah. So as a, as a journalist, though, what have, you, what have you learned about yourself with this process? And I say this process, whether it's the last 20 years, the last 10, the last 10, the last year, the last six months, like what have you learned about yourself as a journalist? Uh, somebody put this into words last night because I, I guess lectured last night at my alma mater, Cookham, and you know, we had like some technical malfunctions and they were saying that tailor your grace under pressure. And I was like, oh, this happens all the time, you know, in news, like you got to go with the flow and something's not working. Like you still got to get a show out. You still got to meet deadlines. And so last night when I was thinking about the positive feedback that I got, um, of course I was super appreciative. And then I thought like, that's been my career. And so like, that's like the biggest thing I can take away with. It's just like, it's like rolling with the punches, like whatever you have in front of it, like making, making it work out of that, making a story out of that, or making sure the story gets told or gets out with whatever you have available. Even if you're like holding up the camera with duct tape and it's on a tape glued to a pole, like yeah. you gotta make it do what it do. And as an educator, it's been now uh, what, three years? Yeah, yeah. three years, almost three years. What, what have you learned about yourself as an educator? Um, I've learned that, fortunately, I have more um, connections and relationships that I thought, and I use them in a way that help benefit students. And I'm just 
you know, really grateful of that because when a student asks like, oh, I'm interested in this or I like to talk to someone in this, I'm like, oh, I know somebody or like my friend and like they're actual friends, like people I look up to and like have actual relationships with that aren't transactional, like could help you and be oh, happy to help you. So it's like, I know amazing journalists, amazing people that want to help other people. Um, and I also have learned that my patience is a lot stronger than I thought it was. Like every year, part of my New Year's resolutions, I'm like, oh, Lord, help me work on my patience. But I'm looking back, I'm like, girl, you're doing a pretty good job. Doing a good job. <laughs> doing a good job, yeah. <laughs> hey, that's dope. That's dope. Well, before we move to segment three, yo, um, the future of journalism. I mean, shit, 10 years ago, someone would have been like, this, this thing will be called TikTok. And like Twitter going to be what Twitter is. And Instagram going to have reels that I can't imagine. It's from a social media standpoint but from a journalism standpoint you've seen the last 10 and this technology like i mean proliferation we're looking at 2032 are we gonna have i mean what's up we're we gonna have robot journalists we're we, we gonna, we gonna see like what's, um, what's up? well i i don't think that artificial intelligence can ever replace the hard work of a journalist <laughs> Say that, say that, say um, that. Say that. I, I think, you know, I don't know what lies ahead, but I know that no matter what, like new technologies are developed, I know that the basic storytelling skills will stay the same. Um, and I, I believe that journalists and news will continue to go out and, and reach audiences. Um, however, we have to do that, you know? So, and now it's TikTok which some people maybe thought was silly at the beginning and now everyone's hip and like once the is developing strategies in the newsroom to get on TikTok. So, you know, we got to meet the people where they're at. Ridiculous. I know people that legit use TikTok for their news, their journalistic news. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm like. It's like people on Twitter and I'm like, dang, I got to tell you about Justice Fryer and 140 characters. All right. <laughs> 280 now. That's 280 now. Get hit, bro. It's 280 now. <laughs> Yeah, that's a while ago. Segment three. <laughs> segment three. Uh, how can I in our podcast community best support you? But I want to edit that a little bit to say not just you, but also the journalism industry as well. Yes. Um, ooh, the support, support in journalism and journalists. One of the biggest ways to support us would be the fight against misinformation. Um. And that looks like a couple of different things. So share quality reporting, like double check that you're not sharing or reposting fake news. And, it, and then no, it's not even intentional or malicious, you know, but just double checking your sources. Um, pay for the journalism you support, you know, subscribe to the New York Times, subscribe to your local, you know, a, a smaller local newspaper, um, sign up for newsletters. Uh, subscribe to podcasts, diversify your news consumption. So, you know, don't be afraid to subscribe to a podcast, follow a Twitter account, um, follow a, a newsroom's TikTok account, like mix it up. You'll get different types of stories um, and it'll be a, a really fun and keep you entertained. Uh, and then, you know, just circling back, a, a reminder for educators that are listening, be an advocate for digital media literacy in K through 12 at the collegiate level. You can even um, have organizations like the Pointer Foundation come in to your 
um, workplace or your corporation and you know teach you a little bit about digital media literacy. So the learning never stops, no matter what age, but that's how you can best support me as a journalist and other journalists. All right, I'm gonna hit point. I forgot about them. They can come to Maryland. Um, you didn't say this and I'm not gonna put words in your mouth, but you're gonna have some people like fighting against you because you know Netflix just went up a couple of dollars in the monthly, uh, they monthly, they monthly bill. So they're gonna have to budgeting's a thing. <laughs> Digital media literacy, financial literacy, figure it out so you can support New York Times and other journalists. journalists and you know, those student emails get you some free access, <laughs> discounted rates. You gotta catch the specials when they do it, subscribe for one dollar a month. You got twelve dollars because you went. To happy hour. Uh -uh. Why you in our business? You good. See? Because, uh, okay, I'm just trying to help them out. We got to be accountable. <laughs> That's real, though. I definitely missed the, uh, I missed one last last year, but we're going to get on it. Well, before we bounce, yo, got a couple of questions for you. Okay. I got a couple of questions for you, and these are going to be fun in nature. <laughs> this is going to be hilarious, actually. But the first of which is, what is your favorite sports memory? It could be one you played in, one you watched, one you caught on the back end. But just in general, what's your favorite sports memory? Oh, um, there's so many. I'm a Cowboys fan, but I'm not going to take y'all down that road because y'all not ready. Before we go any further, since you're a Cowboys <laughs> fan, I just want to make a note. <laughs> this is our podcast, my podcast too. But Joe Burrow has more playoff wins than Prescott. Did you know that? That, I, okay. I did I'm sorry, go ahead. But <laughs> let's get back on topic. <laughs> so um favorite sports memory okay so my most i'll do like a, a, a favorite recent because i have tons of softball ones but my favorite sports memory was when my best friends and i went and to barcelona mm -hmm. and we got jerseys and we were trying to get tickets to the real madrid versus barcelona soccer match or football match they were there, they were playing while you were there yes and wow. so we were in the square and so instead we watched at a bar like right by the stadium and it was amazing i knew nothing about soccer it was my first like soccer game ever there were so many amazing strangers everything involved drinking <laughs> um it was so great i was like oh my gosh i gotta go to another soccer game so yeah that is like my favorite memories. That is, yeah, they say European soccer is bigger than like anything in the U.S. Yeah, and those are like two huge teams. And please yeah. forgive my soccer in ignorance. Um, I I felt like oh, I had a rush. It was great. <laughs> All right, All right. It's, it's funny. All right, second question for you: Your top five artists right now. You don't have to rank them one through five. Just they all number one or they're all number five. But top five. Okay, in no particular order. Mm -hmm. Um. Snow Allegra, Ari Lennox, Summer Walker, J. Cole, and Maverick City Music, but they're, com they're collabs with Elevation Worship. Mm. Yes. Your list. Summer Walker slept on. I might do a whole podcast on Summer Walker. I, I'm not saying she up there with Beyonce, but she up there with Beyonce. But question, <laughs> question three, if you could go to brunch with five people, if you go to a brunch of five people, bottomless brunch, you plus five, they can be either living or not living anymore at any point in history, you plus five people, who are you bringing? 
Okay, now see, bottomless brunch kind of changes it because that means is alcohol flowing with bottomless or bottomless food? We all, we all have, we made decisions, right? Both. Oof, okay. You don't got to drink. You don't got to eat. Okay. You got to eat or drink, but like, just know it's bottomless. What is bottomless brunch without eating and drinking? I'm just okay. saying, you want to invite somebody who didn't drink, they, they're not going to be You're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. Um. Wow. Five people. Definitely Soledad O'Brien. Mm. Look up to her so much. Um. Obviously, so this needs to count as one person. Barack Obama and Michelle. Everyone keeps saying that shit, but it's y'all's podcast. So I, I'm with it. No bombers. Well, 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 yes, those two. Um, hmm. My aunt Nini, who passed away. And oh, I'm only three. Two yep. more. Wow. Miss Brazil, my third grade teacher, fourth grade, third grade teacher, third grade teacher. Um, she was one of my, I, as I got older, I just realized how impactful she was on my life. And I like saved her cards that she wrote to me. Um, and then the fifth person. Dr. Fauci. I'm a fan. I mean, I, I am, I'm very I am. intrigued by his brain. The I'm intrigued by how he has been either welcomed or rejected from certain segments. I just want to talk to him about how he's just taking it all in and how his life changed. And I mean, my dog's named after him. So, and I would like to say I was the first person to ever name their dog after Dr. Fauci or animal pet because my dog's birthday was like the week that everything shut down. So he was born before all the other pets. Okay, no one, listen, no one coming for you, dog. Like, just in case anyone thought about it. Oh, fair. Okay. I mean, it's, it's a dope name. We know it's a dope name. Know. Follow Sir Fauci on Instagram. Um, but before this next question, what do you think, what do you think Fauci would order for the table, yo? Um, you gotta guess. <laughs> uh, fruits and vegetables to that. keep your immune system boosted and make sure we all wash our hands. That's hilarious to me. Last question. Last question. There's only one answer to this, and I, I effed up the bag. I fumbled the bag last time. Who do you want to see on this podcast? Who do I need? What I need on this podcast? And you know who I'm gonna say. But you get, I'm gonna say mine anyway. But I want you to just tell me who you think. Um. Hold on. I have one. But I'm trying to think if you've already said her. Probably not. Um, you're a fan. A big fan. I'm a fan. I'm not Summer Walker. I want Summer Walker. No. Are you ready? Who is it? Don Staley. Oh, fuck. That's, yo, I told you. If Don Staley's <laughs> on the podcast, there is no more episodes. There are no more episodes. <laughs> I have a tweet like in my drafts lined up for her, yo. <laughs> She's been on everybody else's podcast recently and ain't been on mine. It's her time. Okay, I, I'm gonna get her off, off season, summer. After they win this natty in uh, in April. All right, so Don Staley and I know you're gonna hit on master for me. I appreciate it. Master, I'm coming. <laughs> yes. I love his untold stories platform. It's it's been it's been dope to watch and follow. Dallas, though. Nevertheless, Taylor, 
Anything else you want to share with the people? Anything we need to know? Comes around. I think I left it all here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, fun. It's another walk. Another walk on the show. Well, Taylor, again, I appreciate you. Um, like no bullshit. I mean, going back to a tool for discussion, indifference, and accountability. That's good. I took notes. That's good. That's good. Honestly, I think if we created more, not tools, but created more spaces that were rooted and or shaped by those tools, we can have discussion, difference, and hold each other. In the world accountable, I mean, this world look a lot different. <laughs> yes, we look a lot. Accountability aspect. Come on, now. It'll, it'll look a lot different. Uh, but again, thank you for being on our show today. We definitely appreciate you. Uh, for everyone else, make sure y'all subscribe to the New York Times. Uh, it's not a paid endorsement, but I'll be subscribing post episode. Uh, we appreciate you again for taking another time during your weeks since another episode of the Walk with TV podcast. Um, just two more episodes left, uh, two more episodes, and I, I might, I may not tell y'all, I might actually do it, who's going to be closing the season uh, with us, um, season four, focus on educators and education in all spaces. Uh, make sure you rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and a dope-ass review, but only if you mean it. I look forward to having more unfiltered conversation with authentic people centered on education, sport, and culture. But as always, until then, walk with me. I'm not going